Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hey, Guy, how are you? I'm good. This is a surprising one this week. It's been a lot of, I don't know, there's some amazing, amazing stuff here that I didn't really know about, if I'm honest. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I feel quite a level of shame about my zombie yeah. knowledge. But now I've dug into it. Oh my god! I mean, I you know I I knew she's yeah. Not I knew there. I knew they only ate brains. But apart <laughs> from that, <laughs> time of the season. Yeah, I mean, but Odyssey and Oracle well, is yeah, a I, masterpiece. It is a masterpiece, and I. But, but this is what we've got to get into because the whole story of that and what happened afterwards is. But I'm. Mind-boggling. It's just bizarre. Right. So, I think Paul Weller says it's his favourite album of all time. Well, something brought it to my attention last year, and I don't because it, it was it was it's number a hundred on the Rolling Stone greatest albums of all time, and I don't know if I've been looking at that or I read about it somewhere, and I went and had a look, and it was like, hang on a minute, what's this? Where's this been? Yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, it was recorded immediately after uh, Sergeant Pepper's. I don't even know whether they'd even heard Sergeant Pepper's, but it's full of English whimsy and baroque baroque pop. It gets that's named the, as, well, that's what I'm talking about because all the stuff and this this carries on into so well, obviously because you've got those two great writers, well, Rod Argent and Russ Ballard. Yeah, because right from the get go, the music of the zombies and carry on through Colin's solo career, it's incredibly sophisticated. It's it's ex- extraordinarily sophisticated. He did a brilliant old grey whistle test as well. We will get into all of this detail in just a minute. We will. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I It's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You you know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Colin. Hello. Hello. 
Yay! Yay! Yes! Mr. Colin Blundstone, how are you? Hi. Welcome to the show. Lovely to have you here. And you're, where are you? That's lovely where you are. <laughs> Thank you. I'm quite surprised because <laughs> I thought I was going to be talking to Americans, but I'm very obviously you're not. Really? So you um, don't know? You have two fellow English musicians with you right now. I know. I know. A total surprise. Absolutely. Surprise. Your PR is obviously not filling you in. <laughs> it's more exciting this way, isn't it, really? Mr Guy Pratt, who's played on incredible amount of, of songs, you know, from Michael Jackson, Madonna, of obviously Pink Floyd. We share a band now together with Nick Mason. And uh, and I've written a few tunes as well with Spandau Ballet, etc. I know, I know. You thought we were I, two that's, Americans. I, that's why I, I was... <laughs> I was totally taken aback when I saw you, but, ah, but anyway, there we are. I've got a bit of a curveball okay, to well, throw you, Remember, I'm still in mass that... panic at the moment, so, but yes, please do, please do. <laughs> That's, oh, this isn't going to help. No, it's fine. But apparently I met you when I was seven years old because I was taken to the flat in Wimpole Street that you were sharing yes. with Bob Collins... Graham Hudson, Mark Lockhart, and Nick I Allen. remember it very well. And, and how I was taken there by well, this Martin sounds awful, Clark. guy. Could you could you just yes. fill us in a bit? Yeah, I'm gonna. It will all yeah. be revealed. Yes. Martin, you knew in back in St Albans, and I believe he took photos of your first gigs at the old Verulaeum's rugby That's club. Right. Yes. My goodness. Yeah. Martin is my stepfather. Is he really? <laughs> yes. oh, well, do send him my regards, won't you? I, I, I haven't absolutely seen will. him for ages, but I remember him. I know. Well. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh my marvelous. goodness! What, me. what town are you living in, yeah. Colin? Well, I'm just outside Woking in Surrey. Yes. Yeah, I've been here actually for about twenty years. Really, it's it's, it's quite nice. And yeah. You've you've got a busy time coming up. You, well, you've just done a big zombies uh, sort of show that has uh, at Abbey Road Studio 2, which has been streamed. That was, I mean, quite an emotional thing, really, because I'd recorded quite a few albums there years ago. So a lot of memories came back. And then Studio 2, Abbey Road, of course, is the Beatles studio. So you're, the history okay. and the, the atmosphere there is incredible. And, of course, we haven't played for nearly two years. So, well, you know, it's funny. I definitely felt... Felt a little bit rusty, but then why not? If you haven't played for two years, it's none of us have played for two years. I thought you were going to say we haven't played for forty how years. Long, you know? How long did you did you need to rehearse for before you did the show? Well, we didn't do a lot of rehearsal because uh, our bass player lives in Denmark, so it's quite hard for him to get over. So I think we did uh, sort of a couple of afternoons, pretty much. Yeah. And, and we did five new songs. So I did go over those with Rod Argent separately, just around the piano. Because that was another little challenge, five new songs. Who wrote the songs? Those are all Rods. Rods. We're do, we are doing at least one of mine on this album, but those were all Rods, yeah. The catalogue of songs that you have, you know, with your writing and, and the fact you had a band with two incredible writers yes. in it. It's been, it's the, I was saying the last few days of being on a deep dive has just been delightful. I mean, just fantastic. Such beautiful records you've made. Oh, thank you very <laughs> much, yeah. Well, I think they were too, really, for their age. I think they were quite sophisticated writers, actually. But and and particularly Rod, I think he just could always write songs. And I, I must admit, I didn't know until we, well, the band had been going for about three years, and um, we had a producer called Ken Jones. We won a rock and roll yeah. competition back in, well, it was in Watford actually, next door to St Albans, which led to a, a recording contract with Decca. And uh, we were introduced to a producer called Ken Jones, and he was sort of saying, you know, 
we've got our first session in a couple of weeks time you could write something for that session if you wanted bands didn't do that in those days so much mm -hmm. you went to a songwriter the beatles changed all that really and um i didn't think much on it he went on to another subject then but it clicked with rod and he went away and he wrote she's not there and brought it back about 48 hours later and you know it was a million seller and went to number one in america and an actual fact he later told me that was the third song he'd ever written he'd written a couple of songs but he'd kept it a bit quiet i didn't know anything oh, about how, it. how old was he um when he wrote that he was 18. oh my god he wasn't like a trained pianist or anything, well, was he? he wasn't, funnily, no, he what? wasn't actually i think he took about two years piano lessons when he was very young uh, yeah i only say that because there was so much I mean, years before everyone else, the stuff was musically so sophisticated, straight out of the box. Everyone else was only doing three, four chords tops at the time. Mm. And you've already got, like, sneaks of this Baroque stuff. And, he, he just was you know. born with that. But also, he was in the Cathedral Choir in St Albans for many years. Oh, there it is. So there it is. he really <laughs> understood harmony. And he's since taught himself to read music. And he, he made a wonderful classical album. If ever you get the chance to hear it, it's called Classically Speaking. He's playing major piano works, just mm -hmm. fantastic. But when Rod, when when he speaks, he uh, implies or he says that that he he would write out the bass parts or he would he would write the bass parts. Does he mean actually write them out, or did he just sort of play them on the piano and show the other guys what to do? There were times when he wrote parts out, but it, it wasn't all the time, especially not earlier on in the band. But it is interesting to me that um, when Rod wrote a song, he very often knew what the bass part should be so he would explain it to chris white and he very often knew what the drum part should be there's a very distinctive drum part in she's not there and also in time of the season and he would always make a contribution if not specify what the drums should be playing and what the bass should be, particularly the bass because like time of the season has they mentioned the drum part has that really particular really brilliant stop start rhythm thing with the with the vocal rhythm interjection as well i know there's uh isn't it? <sighs> Yeah, uh, Rob was talking about that the other day, and the big the liberating force for us was at that time you could only record in this country on four tracks, but the Beach Boys had just done Pet Sounds and they had an eight-track machine in America. And John Lennon said to the engineers in Abbey Road, "Well, they've got an eight-track machine. We want an eight-track machine." The engineer said, "There isn't one in the country," and he said, "Well, I don't know exactly what his words were, but he sort of said." This is your problem, not mine. Right. And he left them to it. And they managed to put two four-track machines together. I don't know the technical way that you do this. And in fact, that gives you seven tracks. And so suddenly, we were very used to recording on four tracks. So we would do the basic tracks. And we had three tracks left. So we could double-track harmonies. Mm -hmm. Or what happened with Rod Argent, uh, he said, you know, we've done time in the season. He said, you know, I can hear a little hand clap and gasp thing on this. And it was one take. He just went out there and went, ding, 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 all the way through it. And of course, it's a real hallmark of that. Well, it's, a hook. it's a hook. In yes. Nowadays, yeah. you would sample yeah. one of those and just spin it all through, wouldn't you? And have it on yes. a, a, a cut and paste. But listen, we're not really here just to talk about Rod Argent. We're here to talk about you and that yeah. extraordinary voice, Colin, that you, you've you got. Of course, we want to know about the zombies and the beginning of, of your career. And we'll get on to Odyssey and Oracle, which Guy and I both agree is a masterpiece. Yeah. Thank you. But you started as a chorister as well, didn't you? I didn't, actually. No. 
There's misleading information out there. You know I, that. I know. I, sue I, someone. I'm sue sure someone. It happens to you too, as well. <laughs> uh, every time I read something about myself, I think, oh, why did they have to get that just a little bit wrong? Because you know? your voice is extraordinary. <laughs> well, I went yeah. to a, a primary school that did do quite a lot of music, and I actually was featured as a as a boy treble. I, I'm not quite sure. I think a boy is a treble. But only once or twice, because uh, then I was singing in front of the school and I fell apart. I got nerves. And so they never asked me again. But I did have quite a good boy's voice. Then I just forgot all about it, really. I went to a, my second school. They didn't have music, really. We had one lesson a week. And um, uh, it just happened because we sat in alphabetical order at our school. I sat next to a guy whose name ended in A, Arnold, Paul Arnold. He's the only guy who ever left the band. And he was a neighbour of Rod Argent. It's, it's just chance. It's all bizarre. <laughs> he was a neighbour of Rod Argent. And Rod had decided he wanted to get a band together. And he'd asked Paul Arnold to be the bass player because Paul was making a bass guitar in woodwork. He'd never played one, but he was making an electric bass in woodwork. So that got Paul in. And Paul said to me, you've got a guitar, haven't you? And I said, Yes, yeah. <laughs> he wanted me in a band, and that was my audition for the Zombies. And I joined as the as the rhythm guitarist. And at the first rehearsal, we played um, an instrumental called Malaguena, and Rod was the lead singer, so he didn't actually do anything because we were playing an instrumental. And in the break, we had a break to have a coffee, and he went over to a broken down old piano and he played Nut Rocker by B Bumble and the Stingers. Yeah, and it, the, oh, the yeah, Keith yeah. Emerson also made. Did, did point, he do that he? as well? Right. Well, I mean, it's quite an accomplished piece for a 15-year-old boy to play. And I was mesmerised because he was so much better than us. I didn't know him at the time. He was a friend of a friend. But he was so much better than us. I mean, we were really ordinary. And um, I said to him, and I didn't really know his name, you know, whatever your name is, you should play keyboards in this band. You know, you're really good. And he said, no, no, we want this to be a rock and roll band. It's got to be three guitars. And that was the end of the conversation. And then at the end of the first rehearsal, I was just putting my guitar into a case and I sang a Ricky Nelson song to myself. I think it was It's Late. And I just sang it to myself. And Rod came over and said, I tell you what, if you'll be the lead singer, I'll play keyboards. And essentially that was the beginning of the zombies. It, oh, wow. So you hadn't said, listen, you should play keyboards because then one day you can open a shop. <laughs> no, I didn't say that, but I, I, I should Argent, have. Yes. Right, Argent had a keyboard yes. shop, I'm just pointing for our it, listeners. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yes. So what was your rock and roll moment then? Did you have that, like whenever we speak to Americans, it's always, it was either Elvis or the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And for English people, it's, they heard something on usually Radio Luxembourg or something. So was there that song that went, oh my God, I think, um, you know, I would name some of the rock and roll greats as my inspiration, really. I, I'm not sure I could say a specific song, but starting with, well, probably Elvis, but Chuck Berry and, and Little Richard, you know, I just thought they were absolutely wonderful. And then later on, you would have um, Buddy Holly, and I, I, I liked Ricky Nelson as well. And then, of course, it all changed. We'd already started a band at that point. I loved everything that all of those guys did, Eddie Cochran. And then, of course, it all changed with the Beatles. I mean, we were just such huge Beatles fans. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. And is that when you think, would you have decided to sing in an English accent? Because the Beatles sung in their English accent, their Liverpudlian accent. Maybe. I mean, I just felt 
a bit of a phony singing in America. And I know a lot of people do, and I'm, I'm not faulting them. It's, this is just a personal thing. No, but it's interesting that Gary says that because it's not fair. If you're Scouse, if you're Northern, then you say dance and romance. Yes. You do. You do. So, it's, you know, it's not fair on us Southerners. It's not. I don't think I would sing dance. I don't think I could do that. Yes. But I know, and especially in the original Zombies, that I did sing with quite an English accent and it does come out. But nowadays, I think I'm more mid-Atlantic when I sing now. You've always been fantastic. And this goes back right to you know the early Zombies stuff. You, but you're incredibly clear as a singer. You've got a very clean sound. You must, I bet engineers must love recording you. Um, I usually get on pretty well with engineers. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly they seem to say, we want to hear the air around your voice. That's what they always say to me. Well, it's true. If you listen to the first Zombies album, which I think was 64. Yes, yes. There's a track on there that actually Wes Anderson used in, in The Life Aquatic, if you know that movie. The Way I Feel Inside. Uh, the Way I Feel Inside, where, which begins with you with these footsteps walking yeah. towards the mic and then you sing a cappella the whole first verse the sound of the production engineering it could have been recorded yesterday it's so perfect they don't need to cover it in all reverb and delay and it's tr a tricky thing to sing a cappella because it's like there's lots of quite angular changes in it I know and of course uh, I think the band or is it a keyboard comes in at the end yeah. and um it's always a rather worrying moment, you know, that they're going to come in and you're somewhere else. But it works okay that time. Nowadays, I must admit, if we do that song, Rod will ghost on the on the keyboards just to make sure that I'm there or thereabouts, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but the, with with uh, she's not there becoming such a big hit. I mean, suddenly this was all at once. He was just, he was almost still at school. We're and the record school, is a bigger hit in America than the UK, I think, isn't it? It is. And you suddenly go off on some huge American tour. I mean, tell us a bit about that time and what your parents would have said. It was really strange. If I just tell you very quickly about recording, she's not there. Oh, yeah. It's kind of fashionable to record in the evenings, maybe even going into the nights. So we'd arranged to start, well, our producer had arranged for us to start at seven o'clock in the evening. And, uh, we arrived at Decca Studios in West Hampstead, a really, really good engineer. He recorded some wonderful stuff, but unfortunately he'd been at a wedding all day and he was absolutely blind drunk. But worse <laughs> than that, he was incredibly aggressive. And I can remember starting to sing, I've got the cans on, you know, and he's screaming down the cans at us, the worst language you can possibly think of. And taking into account, I've been in this business for about 60 years, I think, it makes me laugh because within 20 minutes of being in that studio, I knew the music business was not for me. I thought this is never gonna work with mad people like this. But on the evening, we had a little bit of luck because he passed out cold on the floor. He just fell on the floor and passed out. <laughs> and we had to carry him out up two flights of stairs and we put him in a London black taxi. And I actually, I never saw him again after that. And his assistant engineer took over and that was Gus Dudgeon. Oh, wow. Gus Dudgeon, you know, recorded all yeah. the early Elton albums. Yeah. yeah. Kiki D, David Bowie, many, yeah. but that Big was producer. his first session with the zombies and he never forgot that and we never forgot it either. I mean, it was a miracle that She's Not There ever got recorded, to wow. be honest. And it came out and it was a hit pretty quickly in this country. It was helped because it was on Jukebox Jury and that week George Harrison was on the, on the jury and um, it's an old TV programme, I don't know. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, With yeah, Pete yeah. Murray at the helm. Pete, yeah. Yes. Or, or, um, was it? David, was it? Have I got that wrong? 
I can't remember. But anyway, George Harrison really liked it. And I, I can't really do a Liverpool accent, but he, he said, well done, zombies. That's the best I can do. And that's it. If he says that, it's a hit. And it was. And um, it wasn't a hit till quite a bit later in the States. It came out more in the autumn in the States. And it went to number one in Cashbox and sort of number two or three in Billboard. It was Christmas, 64. 65 that period and we arrived there for our first live work christmas 64 there was a very influential dj called murray the k murray the k who considered himself to be the fifth beatle oh yes i'm not quite sure what the beatles would say about (laughs) that but i think he claims that ringo or george named him the fifth beatle i thought brian epstein was the fifth beatle anyway but anyway he put these shows on and um so we opened at the Brooklyn Fox on Christmas Day with a with about 14 acts and you just did one or two songs and everybody played and then in theory the, the audience is supposed to leave because there's eight performances a day but mostly they just stayed there there were queues around the block it was very frenzied so it was a, the Shangri-Las the Shirelles Benny King Patti LaBelle Dionne Warwick Chuck Jackson and many, many others. And Well, you name-check all this in your song, New York. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's line for line what happened, yeah. Because you don't know exactly what's happening, but it's lovely, the specific... It reminds me of that Kate Bush song, Moments in Time. And it's a really lovely, evocative thing you do. But now you're you're giving us the, the actual diary entry that it is. Yeah, I mean, there were all these thousands of kids outside, obviously, but and I hear a story that you went home on the subway. We did, we did. If I could just say, we had to follow Patti LaBelle and then she had a singing group with her called the Bluebells, Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. And they brought the house down on every show. They were wonderful. And then <laughs> these teenage kids from St. Albans had to slouch on stage after Patti LaBelle and play. I think we were a tad apprehensive, to be honest, but in, you know, we got away with it. Let's put it like that. Actually, we went down pretty but you, well. You've named nearly all, I think there were black soul acts, right? I mean, Yes. How did you end up as being yeah. these white boys from St. Albans getting stuck in that? <laughs> we had a rather strange bill. manager. I've got to be honest. I don't think he had a clue, to be honest. Where did you get him from? Where did you find your manager? I mean, was it like a mate from school? No, no. From He was quite famous. Uh, if I'm going to say disparaging remarks about him, I better not be too specific right, okay. about his name. Actually, our producer introduced us to him. And he was very influential. And he did get us on TV a lot and things like that but he had a rather strange attitude to fees and royalties and anything to do with money. I.e. he kept it. <laughs> Actually, from a distance, it could seem a bit that way. <laughs> he, he ran a sort of a, a filtering process where a lot seemed to go into his <laughs> But OK, but maybe, Colin, you know, there was a little bit of the blue-eyed soul about your voice and about what you were doing. Maybe. And there, you know, there's some slight Motown tinges, isn't there? That certainly comes out later, I mean, yeah. you do a Smokey Robinson track on the album, don't you, on the first album? On the first too. album, yeah. I mean, we were listening to that stuff. Maybe there was a little bit of that. But going back to the... Uh, it was packed all around uh, um, the Brooklyn Fox, and no-one dared go out of the stage door. But on one occasion, our guitarist, Paul Atkinson, era of screaming people and it could get quite scary and uh, Paul Atkinson went out of the stage door and he got caught by the crowd up against a plate glass window and they tore his shirt off him (laughs) and the police came in and dragged him out and they just said to him look we'll do this once but we're not doing it again so (laughs) 
stay inside. So we would get there early and we would stay there all day with these crowds massing around. And then when the show ended, they all went home. We, we had no money. So we would just limp out of the stage door. There's no one there at this point. And we'd go home on the subway. And in those days, the Brooklyn subway was considered quite dangerous. And people, yeah, absolutely. People couldn't believe that we were going home on the, on the Brooklyn subway. It seemed such a strange contrast from being kept you know, hidden away all day backstage because of this huge crowd outside. Gary and I are used to the age of sort of the record company yes, always having people on hand to sort of take you to and from. And but there was something of the, I don't mean this badly, a bit of the unglamorous about the zombies that you just felt that, yes. you know, a couple of guys in glasses. And yet yes. you were part of this first British invasion. I know. We really suffered from that in the UK. And the trouble is that if I talk about it, which I'm obviously going to do, it reactivates that old image. It was also amateurish. We went to Decker's Records one day to go to their press department. And remember, we were pretty much just out of school. One of the guys was literally just out of school. And we had a sort of a 20-minute, half-an-hour meeting with them. And it went something like, well, what are we going to do about an image for you? It's, it was really blunt and full-on like that. And we go, well, I don't know, really. And they said, well, what have you been doing? Somebody came up with the idea of saying, well, literally, we've just got out of school. I really wish they hadn't said that because the conversation then went on something like about, well, what did you do at school? You've got lots of exams. We didn't get lots of exams. We got one or two exams. And we were launched as a sort of um, an English geek boffin band or something. (laughs) (laughs) And on top of that, of course, two of the guys had glasses and Chris White still has glasses, but Paul Atkinson, sadly, no longer with us. But he got rid of his glasses after a while. And to be honest, when he got contact lenses, he was a bit of a babe magnet. He was a good looking boy. But those (laughs) early photos and and that image just destroyed us. I mean, we were just like any other young band, you know, but we missed out on that in America because we went there six months after we've made our first record. they forgot about all that because we, we we got a big hit record and we were treated in a different way in America. I can hear you influencing the doors. I can hear what you guys yeah. are doing would have gone, you know, into the keyboard and the vocals of, of the doors later on. Quite possibly. And it is amazing how many bands, so even young modern bands say that to us now. But of course, uh, one of our main supporters in the States who always said we did influence him was Tom Petty. And he was wow. always talking about us, always. And yeah, when yeah. we had a, a box set was issued a few years back, Tom Petty wrote the forward inside the box set. And in the UK, Paul Weller has just been incredible. He always talks about us and he's named Odyssey and Oracle as his favourite album, which is just... Is that awesome. why you moved to Woking? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Woking boy, isn't it? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. He's got a studio at uh, Ripley, yeah. yeah. This is a trivial little side point, but just while we're at the bed, just to... When you said this geeky thing, but you were called the zombies. Now, the funny thing is, ah. now we live in an age where a quantifiable amount of all film and television, like sort of 18% of all films are about zombies. Everyone knows what zombies I know. What was the zombie then? Like I said, it was some sort of Haitian voodoo thing. Uh, when we were okay. named the zombies, I had no idea what a zombie was. <laughs> but we were desperate for a name. And, you know, I, I'm not proud of this, but we started off for a few weeks being the Mustangs, and that obviously had right. to go. And then I think I suggested this because it, it was a film that was popular a few years before, The Sundowners, which is even worse. <laughs> so we were getting desperate. 
And the guy who sat next to me at school was called Paul Arnold. And he came up with this idea of the zombies and everybody loved it, I think, except me, probably because I didn't know what it was. It seems like so much of your career is dependent on the seating arrangements at your school. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I think it it is. I tell you what, so much of it is chance. That's what intrigues me. I'd like to say, you know, I made this brilliant decision to do this and against all the warnings I struggled through and, and obviously I was proved correct. Well, that's never happened to me. It's just I met someone in a pub and he suggested this song and then I you know, met someone else walking home and they suggested this producer and that's sort of how it's happened pretty much. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. You toured across America with with pretty much an all-black review, didn't you? And I think you were the only white we boys did. on the bus. Yes. How was that in sort of, you know, in those days? Well, a I mean, time? it was interesting and at times quite scary, I have to say. That, that was about 1965. And... There were uh, two or three white acts with us. The Shangri-Las, funnily enough, were on that tour. Tommy Rowe and us, and uh, the rest were black acts. And there were restaurants we couldn't eat at, and there were hotels we couldn't stay at. And we went right across the south. You know, we, listen, we weren't taking any prisoners here. We, we went from Florida. Yeah, you're not in St. Albans anymore. No, right? no, 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 no. <laughs> we went from Florida right across the south to California. This is the most scary point for me was I walked into a hotel in Texas and I had my arm around the lead singer of the Velvetettes. They're a wonderful band, the Velvetettes. And right their name. songs have been covered. And I can't remember them. There's a, a, a girl group who covered their songs, um, 
needle in a haystack and really saying something. Oh, oh, great records. But Anorama yeah. didn't really say well, they something. Were, yeah. They were songs that were recorded by the Velvetettes. And I had my arm around the lead singer, uh, Carolyn Gill, her name was. And our road manager came over to me and said, you can't do that, you can't do that. There's a guy over there said, if you go on like that, he's going to shoot you. Uh, <laughs> well, fair enough. I mean, wow. I'd like to make a stand on this, but uh, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just took my arm down and, <laughs> and sort of improvised on a theme I, after that. I, I, sorry to grab this one, Guy, but I, I know that I, no, this is hysterical when you tried to go to Graceland to see Elvis. We did. Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We did. We were doing an interview in Memphis, and it was kind of weird. The DJ said to us, well, when we finish, do you want to go and see Elvis? Like you would say, your mate down the road, you know. I presume you <laughs> him, I don't know. So we said, well, you know, might be interesting. <laughs> of course we want to go and see Elvis. Yeah. So we went to Graceland and there was no security whatsoever. Those same gates were there. We just opened the gates and we walked up that little hill that you walk up to the door and we knocked on the door. and. I've never been quite sure if it's his dad or his uncle who came to the door and said, oh, the zombies. And he was really flattering. He said, uh, Elvis is away in Hawaii doing a film. Otherwise, he'd love to see you. He really likes your music. And we thought, well, he's very charming. And um, I'm sure Elvis has got no idea who we are. But apparently, this DJ who seems to know everything about Elvis told us later that Elvis had two or three of our records on his jukebox. So maybe he did know who we were. Did you but get to look I, around? We did get to walk around. He said, <laughs> did you nick an home. ashtray? Come on, did you nick an no, ashtray? No, I didn't nick an ashtray. I wish I had. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, make yourselves at home, have a walk around. But with no Elvis, there, it's not, you don't quite know what to do, really. You just sort of, you're loitering with intent, aren't you, really? Um, That's true, yeah. I'd be going through his drawers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to know, don't you? I just want to know yeah. who it is. We've been back. We went back... Uh, two or three years ago and they, they really made a big fuss of us actually but it was totally different there was security everywhere and it, it's like um, an amusement park now because although the zombies are well known in, and, and those songs are incredibly well known I think there's a different attitude towards the zombies in America in the same way that you know we don't consider Dave Clark Five as being the big band that they were but they were enormous they in were, America they were and actually there are two Herman's there Herman's. are two oh, yeah. that, um, the Dave Clark Five and Herman's Hermits right. were absolutely huge out there. I played one gig with Herman's Hermits actually in Montreal in Canada. And we were on probably second or third to last, but probably second to last. And when Herman's Hermits came on, it was, there were 10,000 people there and they all got up and moved forward. And that's the only time I thought, Whoa, this is a bit scary. The audience were just so enamored and excited at Herman's Hermits coming on. Wow. I thought it was just going to get a bit out of control. And uh, you probably can't imagine that happening in the UK. And to some extent, it's true with us. But I do put it down to that early meeting at Decca when we turned up as young kids. And I just think we got landed with a kind of an image that uh, really did us no favours. I and mean, people who come and see us now, that's Rod and I, and a new incarnation of the band. And um, I think they come to a large extent because of the new incarnation of the band. We've been playing for 20 years now yeah. around the country. Mm -hmm. And although they know those original songs, there's very few people who come to see us now who were going to see the original band back in the 60s. It's just such a long time ago. But there couldn't be also, the, because what's it like, the legacy that the zombies have in America, 
it seems like a band who would have made a lot more records than you did. Do you know what I mean? Because there's yes. really yes. not no, that much. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that there's a sort of a bit of a mystery around the zombies because as far as anyone can tell, we recorded Odyssey and Oracle, which Rolling Stone quite recently named in the top 100 album. That's, yeah, but when I saw that last year, that's what made me go and dig it out again. It is a phenomenal accolade. And people can't understand how we recorded Odyssey and Oracle and then not soon after the band finished. And it just doesn't add up. Gary and I were talking about this before because this is something we find mind boggling. Yeah, but you seem to have jumped. Normally, bands go through two or three albums of kind of the similar sort of stuff, you know, difficult second album, third album, all starting to find their, their sort of sound. And then they make their intense masterpiece. You jumped straight from first teeny bop kind of album to masterpiece. And it seems like you were at old heads too soon almost. Yeah. Well, possibly. I mean, you know, our career... I've never worked out if the original Zombies were lucky or unlucky because there's so many wonderful things happened to us that makes me think we were really lucky. But if things had just been slightly different, if we got any managerial guidance at all or any financial support, you know, I told you about his... Um, I've only just thought of this word, but he had this special filtering process in his office mm. where quite a lot of money went in and not a lot of money came out at the other end. And, you know... <laughs> The three non-writers, the writers were quite fortunate in that our manager was not involved in writing royalties, so they got wow. their royalties direct. So they were quite comfortable because they'd all written hit songs. Chris White had written a big hit song for an American band called People that had gone to about number three, and he'd got all the B-sides and half of the album. So they were quite comfortable. I'm glad they were, rightly so. But the three non-writers were destitute. And I think that was one of the reasons why the band was, uh, you know, starting to to fall apart. That's where that old whole old school style of, of management is so short sighted, isn't it? Because you're yes. killing the thing that's going to make what you I don't more understand. money. <laughs> that guy, he, yeah. he managed other big artists as well. If he'd have done a good job, if he'd have thought in terms of careers, and if he tried yeah. to support and help people. He firstly, he would have made far more money, far more money. Exactly. Yeah. And secondly, he would have got some fulfilment out of what he was doing and some recognition, instead of which he's a forgotten name from a, a side of the industry that's really not particularly attractive. So setting up the ground for Odyssey and Oracle and this album, you've got a band that are, you know, split really as far as financial security is concerned, feeling like they're not being treated very well. But you change labels, don't you? And you borrow some money and then you enter the great Abbey Road Studio 2 yes. almost just a couple of weeks. Yeah, straight after Sergeant Pepper. Yeah. After a couple I of mean, days. Pet Sounds must have been on the record player at some point. The Beach Boys seem to be in there as well. Yeah, I think so. Also, it should be pointed at the same time as Sergeant Pepper, you got Pink Floyd making Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wasn't that. aware of what they were yeah. doing, but I was very aware of Sergeant Pepper or the Beatles anyway. We hadn't heard Sergeant Pepper because they'd only just finished it. And um, famously, John Lennon had left his Mellotron in Studio 3. And if you listen to Odyssey and Oracle, it would have been a different album if he hadn't left his Mellotron behind because Rod used the Mellotron on yeah. most of the tracks. You know? And also it was a real thrill because there were lots of percussion instruments left on the floor. And, you know, being huge 
Beatles fans, we walked in and we were picking up tambourines and maracas or whatever was on the floor. That they'd been left there by the Beatles. So the Beatles are sounding incredibly careless here. They leave mellotrons, they leave percussion <laughs> all over. I mean, what about, what's going on? I know, I know. <laughs> Just to describe to people what a mellotron is, this is a, like the early sampler, isn't it? And it's a beautiful. Yeah. It's where they tape recorded violin or flute recorders, and they were on a tape loop. And when you depress the key of the keyboard it spins the tape loop around on a tape head and plays the sound. It's a beautiful instrument. It's got a very distinctive sound. It really it's has. The, Strawberry Fields is the kind of probably the most yes. famous, yes. isn't it? Yeah. But the thing is about this album is it sounds like music I'd never, that isn't, hasn't really come before it. There's a lot of the Baroque on there. There's a lot of Bachian kind of chords, shapes. Yeah. The lyrics is one that I think Roger Waters would have dreamt of writing. It would be pre-Roger Waters writing anything to do with the First World the War. The Butcher's Son. You know, there, yeah. there are these absolutely gorgeous, what do you call it, when you, you've, you've got a choral of, of voices, a madrigal. There are some madrigals on there. I, mean, oh, yes. I, do, I think I'm going to use this word again, Guy, that we often use. I think we use it in every oh, okay. single oh, episode yeah, no, of Rock so on I think... This, yeah. this is, there's a beginning of prog in there, isn't there? Beginning of, yeah, it's true. Progressive music, you know. Could be, yes. And how did you feel when you were making it? Did it feel like this is an extraordinary, this is different? This is like way apart from anything I've heard. I felt at the end of the album, I remember distinctly feeling this is the best that we can do. And I think probably subconsciously I was thinking, well, this is the best we can do. If no one recognises this, if no one's interested in it, and perhaps it's time to move on to another project. I'm not sure if I actually got that far, but maybe I, I was subconsciously thinking that. And in fact, that is what happened. Um, remembering that this was still a time of singles. It, albums were of more course, important yeah. at the, the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. We released a single, Care of Cell 44, which is the first track on the album. Which is a beautiful song. I, I, I think it's the most commercial yeah. track on them. A Letter to a Prisoner. Yeah. Yes, What's that's that? right, yes. And... Um, nothing didn't get any airplay absolutely nothing and i think that's when we had that sort of a dreaded meeting boys i think we need to talk you know and we got together i think we all knew what was coming and we decided that perhaps it was time to move on and it, i think it was you know really amicable we did, it just seemed obvious to us that at that time it seemed there wasn't a future is this when you went back and became an insurance clerk? If I could say, in my defence, <laughs> I didn't turn down the music industry for insurance. I didn't feel that I was very patient. <laughs> I took the first job I was offered. I had absolutely right. no money. And as only probably someone like me can do, I took this job, which was, it was a long journey. I lived in a place called Hatford and I had to get up to the city of London. And, and then it was really, the phones were ringing all the time. I know nothing about insurance, nothing. And the phones were ringing all the time. So it was very hard work. And then I had to get home afterwards. And I sat down and worked out that by the time I'd paid my train fare and a bit of rent, a bit of food and whatnot, I was actually working at a loss. So I might as well have stayed in the zombies, really. Cause... I mean, I, I find this such a crime to hear this story. And it's a sad story. Couldn't the writers have sort of perhaps helped support the others for a bit. Well, I mean, actually, later on, it was negotiated that 10%, I think, of the publishing was split amongst the five. Gary did that for years. Do you know what I think is sad, though? Is even the writers have just been involved in a making a masterpiece, a future masterpiece, if you like, that no one recognised at the time. 
Well, not completely, because one of those songs did become a, a huge hit, especially in America again, but much later. But this is like Van Gogh's story, isn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. we look at Odyssey and Oracle now, and we go, well, this is one of the great records of all time. And yet those Van Gogh paintings weren't recognised when he did it. He had to go and cut off his ear. You going to work in an insurance <laughs> firm is cutting off your ear. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it felt like I have to tell you it was amazing because I was put in charge of quite big accounts and um, I remember there was the daughter of a multi-millionaire the guy was called Charles Claw he was very famous at that time multi-multi-millionaire and I I was put in charge of his daughter's house and paintings and sashes and things I'm trying to work out her insurance and I'm trying to add up what all these statues, and because there was no um, calculators or anything like that. So there was one big machine in the whole office where you typed in all these things, and after each amount, you had to go... Like a Turing machine. <laughs> <laughs> and every time I got to the end of adding up her paintings and her statues, you know, one time it would be 3,250,000. And then the next time I added it up, it would be 4,100,000. Kept getting different figures. I was getting panicky because there was only this one machine in the office and I couldn't keep it going for too long. So in the end, I just had to take sort of a middle figure out of all these things. And God knows what just thought of her insurance. My first, one of my first jobs was working at the Financial Times and I was a clerk and I, I had to calculate the dollar to sterling rate. We used to have to do it kids like me in those days and then it would go into the print and I got it wrong and I got called up in front of the editor of the Financial Times who was furious don't tell anyone Kemp but you you know I did more to destroy capitalist system than any (laughs) any seller of socialist worker could in the 70s (laughs) well congratulations on that one I think I nearly destroyed the British army because um, they have these sort of social clubs where all their uh, booze is stored and whatnot, and they're called the NAFI, N-A-F-F-I. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we insured the British Army's NAFI, and I got put in charge of it. Oh, I didn't know anything. But um, the woman who was representing the army, she only phoned me once, because it was very, very apparent, you know, after about two sentences that I didn't know anything. I was trying to be really vague when she asked me questions. You know, this account's probably worth millions and millions of pounds, and I'm going, you know, Mm, it might be. Yeah, yeah, I'm quite sure about that one. <laughs> she wouldn't speak to me after that. But, but for people who don't know, the greatest part of your story is still to come, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't mean now. I mean, it, it, as you felt like a failed musician who'd really done some beautiful stuff and some extraordinary stuff, the big part of your career was just around the corner. Yeah. It was. And I mean, I must admit, at that time, I, I thought that my career in the music business was over. I really did. But then Time of the Season was a huge hit in America and people started calling me at work. And as I said before, it was very, very busy. The phones rang all the time. And I couldn't talk to people about making records. I just I just physically didn't have time. There's another thing that seems odd. How is this record being promoted and sold and everything if there isn't a band? I suppose because it was America, they, they don't know. <laughs> I mean, listen, it, it is an extraordinary story in that Al Cooper came to London and he bought about 200 albums. From Blood, Sweat and Tears, right? From Blood, Sweat and Tears. Who played the organ on Like a Rolling Stone. That was his... Oh, did he? Did he? I didn't know that. And um, he bought about 200 albums and he just said that this one album just stood out, Odyssey and Oracle. He went back to America and he just started working as a producer at CBS. 
And the first day he started working, he went in to see Clive Davis and he got Odyssey on Oracle with him. And he said, Clive, whatever it costs, we have to get this album. And Clive Davis said to him, well, we already own this album, but we were going to pass on it. We weren't even going to release it. And Al Cooper fought for it. It would never have been released. And it had already been released here and it was a failure. So that would have been the end of it. But Al Cooper fought for it and it was released. I think they released three singles before they got to Time of the Season. Then Time of the Season was released. Uh, a DJ in Boise, Idaho would not stop playing it. And he kept on and on and on. And eventually it went to other stations and it, it just spread of its own volition. It wasn't being promoted and it wasn't being marketed. I've often thought it just had a life of its own and it ended up being a hit. And did it take uh, off in the UK? No, it was never a hit in the UK. People think it is because it's been in lots yeah. of films and it's been in lots of commercials. They think it was a hit. hit yeah, no, but... it's absolutely part of the tapestry of that time whenever you think that, you know, and yeah, certainly any documentary. Because it's a sort any, of Age yeah. of Aquarius sound to it, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. If people are doing a film that's got anything to do with the 60s, that's one of the songs they go to, you know, is, is time of the season. Guy, I think it's time we brought up the fake zombies. Oh, Absolutely. <laughs> Why should we promote ourselves when we can have people promote us? When you can have ZZ Top promoting you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Explain, Guy. Because it was quite funny. This came up a few uh, while ago. We had Mick Fleetwood on, and, and they had the same thing where there was a fake Fleetwood Mac going around. And it turns out that you had not only one, there were two. Well, actually, I think at one time there were three. So I don't sell us short. There were actually three. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm heaven for So fans. this is like tribute bands, but with no permission, pretending uh, they yes. are you. Yes. People buy tickets thinking they're going to see the zombies. They, and it, they and did. one of them had Frank Beard and Dusty Hill, who, who would then go on to be the rhythm section of ZZ Top. <laughs> right. That's right. You see, the thing was that with a hit record and no band, there was a vacuum. And managers and agents hate a vacuum. Or, or maybe it's the other way around. They love a vacuum. I thought it was nature that hated a vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> They can fill it with their own bands, and that's what happened. But one thing that really did make me laugh was uh, Chris White, our bass player, was in New York, and he was in the offices of Rolling Stone, and they said, look, let's set this manager of one of those bands up, get Chris White to phone him and ask him what's going on, as if he was a Rolling Stone journalist. Oh, brilliant. And um, the guy was talking to Chris White, and he said, well, the thing is that the lead singer of The Zombies was killed in a car crash and we want to honour his name what? by keeping wow. the music alive. This <laughs> one in Rolling Stone. This was talking about me dying. And I said, you know, what's that thing that Oscar Wilde said? I think. Did you uh, organise the insurance? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should have, yes. The news of my death is slightly premature. Yes. Yes. Uh, 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 news of my demise has been greatly exaggerated. Yes, yes, that's yes. <laughs> so that, that was quite interesting. So we had three bands pretending to be us. There was another band later, and I think it was sort of the late 80s, and they were actually an English band, and they were pretending to be the zombies. By all accounts, they really weren't very good, and they were getting a lot of people very upset. And I, I spoke to, I wrote to the Musicians' Union, and I wrote to their manager. I found out who their manager was, and I was trying to get, you know, some kind of sense out of the situation, and all of a sudden, they stopped playing. And I thought, well, I must have done something, right? I don't know what I've done, but it's obviously <laughs> it's worked. And then I found out it was actually nothing to do with me. They were a very poor band. They were playing in front of this audience and who were very disappointed in their performance. And being in America, 
and I don't advocate this, I really do not advocate this, of course, but one of the audience went into the uh, dressing room where the zombies were changing and pulled a gun on them and said, you are not the zombies, you will stop doing this. And, <laughs> and they did. <laughs> So I can't you, I you would, frankly. It's now a Netflix series. It's a work. Oh my god! Talk, talk. And that's why you always carry a gun now, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. That's where I wear, a, that's where I wear a, a special vest. Colin, yeah. Colin, talking about people pretending to be. We are the zombies. Be, we are the zombies. Talking about people pretending to be other people. Let's talk about oh Neil MacArthur. Yes. <laughs> Tell uh, us about Neil me. MacArthur. Well, one time of the season was a huge hit and I was working in the burglary department of the Sun Alliance in London. At one point I thought I was supposed to arrange burglaries, but obviously I wasn't. And <laughs> the, the phone rang and one of the guys that rang was a producer, a really successful producer called Mike Hurst. And he just produced right. the early Cat Stevens records like uh, Matthew and Son. Uh, oh, when he was Mike a pop Lott. singer. Yeah. And he was, he was in the Springfields with Dusty yeah. Springfield at one point. And... Uh, he convinced me to start singing again and you know i said well i'm, I'm working all the time and he said well i've got time at olympic studio come after the office <laughs> i'd arrive in a pinstripe suit from the office and um he would put these tracks together and i'd just sing on them and i was just sort of testing the water really to see what would happen and he suggested that we re-record she's not there which with the benefit of hindsight, it seems a little bit strange, but I wasn't even sure I was going to be in the music business. I mean, it was to me, it was just trying things out. And it was quite an interesting version of She's Not There. Yeah, it and is. It yeah. also uh, suggested that I change my name. And I've seen an interview where he said that it was my idea, but I remember it in a completely different way. And I was going to be James MacArthur right up until the record was released. It was a very arbitrary choice, this. And, um, Apparently, there was a James MacArthur who was an actor in Hawaii Five-O. So oh, yes, the record yes. company in America said, no, no, you can't be James MacArthur. So they said, oh, he'll be Neil MacArthur then. So I ended up as Neil MacArthur. And the record came out, and it was a small hit. And there was no turning back. It was the end of the burglary department for me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I was off and running again. That's but a sentence so I never the, thought I'd hear. The, the whole thing with stage names is that you've got this anonymity, and it always makes me laugh, the same as with Engelbert Humperdinck, is that you can be literally anyone. And yeah. you start to eat Neil MacArthur, like rather than Johnny Alsatian. Or... I know. <laughs> well, I've had people say to me about Colin Blunston, is that a stage name? And I go, listen, if I was picking a stage name, do you think I'd pick a name like Blunston? No one can ever spell it. Well, you picked Neil MacArthur last time. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't very successful. But I would maintain that I had no part in the choosing of Neil MacArthur. But was it anything to do with Richard Harris? Had that been out first? Was it really Neil MacArthur Park you were trying to be? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I, I played no active part. I mean, part. I have to say the tracks are fantastic. And it's the beginning of your style in a way. You know, there's an element. I can hear an element of Scott yeah, Walker. Definitely in the passion and the arrangement and the storytelling. I, I do love the version of She's Not There. It actually got used in The Crown recently. It did. Uh, that Neil MacArthur version. I in, know. Yeah. In the episode with uh, Princess Margaret. So what was the coming out of Colin Blundstone? I think the Neil MacArthur adventure had probably just about run its course. It was very much let's make hit singles and we'd had a couple of that weren't hits. And so I got the feeling that uh, any enthusiasm that had been there was diminishing by the day. And I was literally coming home from a party with Chris White, the bass player in The Zombies, 
And um, they'd got a production company. And he said, listen, forget the Neil MacArthur thing. Why don't you come and record with Rod and I and obviously use your real name. And um, we've got this deal with CBS. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a great idea. And we, we ended up back in Studio 3 in Abbey Road, where we'd been with Odyssey and Oracle. We were Studio 3, Abbey Road, with Peter Vince Engineering, who was the predominant engineer on Odyssey and Oracle. So it was, there, was a, there was a real thread going from Odyssey and Oracle to that first album. And the band then had become Argent, hadn't it, essentially? Weren't those guys... Yeah. That's right. Rod, Rod had started the band Argent, and in fact... The first track on my album, or, or maybe there's two or three tracks, were Argent, or the rhythm section. They just started mm. at that point. I, I was always a huge fan of Argent. Was there only a, ever a sort of question of you being in Argent? No, 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 no there was never any thought of, of that happening. I was just a fan. I used to go to their gigs. I used to pay at the door and I would go to their gigs. I just thought they were fantastic. I, I agree, I agree. I, I'm a, I've always been a huge Argent fan, I'm who's, who's the singer for Argent? Was it Russ Ballard? Or? Mostly Russ Ballard, yeah. But Rod did sing some songs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what's, what's interesting about this album is it's called One Year and it was about one year in your life. There's, there's obviously the beautiful song on there, Caroline, Caroline Goodbye. Goodbye. A, well, they're all great songs. Uh, and again, incredibly sophisticated. And there's a touch of... There's obviously that whole West Coast singer-songwritery thing is now seeping in. Yeah. yeah, I said to Guy the other day, the first track on the album, I can't remember what it's called now, this is the beginning of Yacht yeah. Rock. You know? yeah. it, has, yeah. it has a sort of Todd Rundgren feel to it. Did I say that right it's again? Rundgren, Rundgren. 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 Every time, every time. I know, I know, I know. What a pleb. So it was about your life, wasn't it, in that year? Roughly speaking, I mean, it's at the time it struck me as so strange that it had actually taken us a year to record this album. I know people take long periods of time now to record, but I'd never been involved in a project like that before. And so it, it just struck me. It was very strange that we'd taken a whole year. And Say You Don't Mind was the big hit on that one, obviously. That's right. A den lovely Denny Lane song. How did you come across Denny Lane? Did you know him or? I did know him, actually. But um, the Zombies used to end their shows with that song. Um, say you don't mind but we did it as a rock song and on the one year album we started off trying to do it as a rock song and it, it didn't really work and it didn't really work and we've been introduced to this fantastic string arranger called Chris Gunning oh Chris Gunning yes I yes. wanted to ask about him a b exquisite arrangement phenomenal yeah. and we'd already tried it as a, a rock venture and it hadn't worked and Chris got hold of it and he did an arrangement for a 21 piece string orchestra and it is phenomenal. But I didn't think it was commercial. I'll be honest, everyone always says they know what that hit, that song was going to be a hit. I knew that. Didn't think it would ever be a single. I thought it was fabulous what he did, but it didn't sound commercial to me at, at all. But eventually it was released. I think it was the second or third single, third single. And, and it was quite a big hit. Yeah, there's a clip of you singing it on the old grey whistle test. But I just yeah. wanted to ask about that because, mm. I mean, I just love the old string players behind you. There's, yeah, they look fantastic. I mean, ancient. But that was pre-Bob Harris, that one. I think it was Richard Williams when he presented it. Were you miming? Because I think they mimed in those days. Or did you actually sing that live? No, I sang that live, yeah. And with the cool... Because it sounds phenomenal. Yeah, they're playing. Oh, OK, because uh, there were some of those, like the Bowie one, where the vocal is live and the, and the track is... Oh, right, yeah. No, that's completely tape. live. So, Oh, okay. I direct people to that because it's so good. It's so worth catching up on that. And it, and of course, Caroline, goodbye was about your girlfriend. Yes. In some ways, a little bit unfortunate in that 
I couldn't think of another name to fit in. I was going to say, because that's quite bold, it's usually, traditionally, one changes the name of one. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit late now, but if you can come up with a name, I, please tell me <laughs> that will fit there. I just couldn't think of another name. And then I thought, in my innocence, I thought, well, look, only my close friends are going to know anyway about this. Does it really matter? And so I kept that name in there. I thought I'd get away with it, to be honest. But a journalist on the Express, he knew the story and he did a honestly it doesn't seem like it's very newsworthy to me but he did a full page article on that song but of course it gave them the chance to put caroline in a bikini in a in a photo and so i mean that helps to sell newspapers and um so my secret was out and it was to be honest i don't know i hope it didn't embarrass her it wasn't meant to but it was a little bit Have you not spoken to her since? Did you never... Uh, I have spoken to her, but not about... I don't think I've spoken to her about that song. I think it actually, it helped with your success in a way because, in you know, 71, we're talking about, you know, the, the sort of autobiographical singer-songwriters coming out of the States, out of the West Coast. Here you are with your heart on your sleeve, singing songs that you're now writing, of course. You've now discovered that ability and I think that that sensitivity, you know, along with people like Cat Stevens, you know, changing his style all of a sudden, I think it was right for the times, probably. Perhaps it was, yeah. With the zombies and with myself, I've never really tried to fit in with the times. And I know it's true with the, particularly with the zombies, we've always just tried to, when it, when it comes down to it, we've just tried to record the best songs we've got to the best of our ability. And we've hoped that if it means something to us, if it moves us, then it will move other people. And that's kind of what's always been behind my recordings. But anyway, it was good because I was starting to write. I think I wrote four of the songs on that album. And and actually in America, in November, they're going to re-release one year and it's going to be a double album. That's right, a big deluxe thing. And there's, and there's a whole load of tracks, is there? And have, have these not been heard before or? That's correct. Uh, Chris White's sons were going through his old storage unit, attic type thing, for uh, tapes of his and found 14 demos of mine. And uh, as soon as the record company heard about that, they wanted to include it in the package. Now, time will tell whether that was the right thing to do or not, because they're most of them, they're just me sitting playing the guitar. So- Yeah, but we love that. We all love that stuff, well, you know? I hope people like it. I do, I feel a bit vulnerable, really. Um, because there were a lot of very personal songs that I used to write, and once they're discarded, you forget them. Some of these songs, when I first heard them, I couldn't even remember them. I don't remember the sessions, and I didn't remember the songs. Those songs have come back. For you, that must be, it's like finding an old diary. It, isn't exactly. It, it is. Yeah. Lots of memories, lots of memories. And there were 14 songs, and I think three or four of them we took on and recorded, but the rest were discarded. So it's going to be very interesting to see how people react to it. So this was a period when you, you obviously hit a rich vein. You started to find out yeah. who you were and, uh, and and the success was deserved. And when, and I'd, I'll never forget, is it, you know, I don't know what I was, 12, 13, when, um, you know, I don't believe in miracles came on the oh, radio. Yeah. I mean, your voice is extraordinary. We will talk about the writing of I don't believe in miracles, though, I think. I mean, how did Russ bring that one to you? Or yes. Russ Ballard wrote that. He wrote that, and uh, I think he had two songs at the time, and the other one was called Heartbreaker. And I, I went down to his house. He was actually living with his parents, and we just went into the music room, and he just played me that song. It was wonderful, because he's a 
great artist, Russ. You know, he, he's mm-hmm. a brilliant artist. And uh, I just loved it. Argent played on that, Don't Believe in Miracles. In fact, Russ played piano on that track. Jim Rockford played bass, Bob Henrik played drums, and then we all got together and did the harmonies. Yeah, I mean, it was a wonderful song, absolutely gorgeous song. But you were wearing your heart on your sleeve. Your vocal always has always sounded like that. Did you plug into your emotions when you sing? I, I think I do, yeah. I mean, I do try and sing the lyrics as if I mean them. I mean, obviously, I didn't write those lyrics. Russ Ballard did. But, yeah, I try to interpret with emotion what the writers presented me with. I don't just, you know, sing like a robot reading the lyric off a piece of paper. I'm yeah, really yeah, trying to yeah. get into it if I can. Yeah, you sound plumbed into your heart, is I think what I was yes, trying to yeah. say. And there's a lot of nice names as well on that list of people that you were working with at the time. There's a Mike DeBow who wrote Handbags and Glad Rags and played with Man for a Man and, and Pete Wingfield, 18 with a bullet. Yes. There was a real sort of London scene, wasn't there, of, of session players? Yes. And Well, I mean, um, Pete Wingfield was in my solo band for two or three years. And towards the end, I mean... These sort of chance things that happened towards the end of that band, he brought me a demo of 18 with a bullet. I think it was more or less what went out as a record. And I went to my then manager and said, look, honestly, I think this is wonderful. This guy's come up with this song. I'd love to record it. And he just laughed at me because he said, you're a romantic balladeer. You don't record songs like this. So I thought, okay, I'll take it to the head of A&R at CBS. Same reaction. He just said, you know, you can't sing songs like this. Maybe he's right, but I, I never got the opportunity. And it, it was a, a sobering experience. So Pete, you know, quite rightly put it out himself and had a huge hit with it. Um, yeah, I remember it so well. That was one that got away. And this is when you were at Rocket Records. I was, but this, this is just before I saw oh, it. just before that, okay. It's towards the end of the time at CBS, yeah. What were you saying, Guy, though? About the well, Elton John I, I was just wondering about. Well, it's only because when you said earlier about Gus Dudgeon, I wondered if it was. I, I, ah. it's because of course oh, when you're young, it's, absolutely. Oh, there is a connection. Yes. I wonder if that was related to your time with the zombies. Yes, it was. I didn't have a manager, so one year and Ennismore, I didn't have a manager, and but they felt really felt that I needed a manager, and I got in, introduced to a, a guy called Barry Cross, who again. Was Barry managing, Cross. Barry Cross. He was managing Cat Stevens. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No. Uh, he was my dad's agent when my dad was an actor. And in fact, first time I went to LA, I stayed with his brother, Jackie Cross. Uh, Jackie Cross was my tour manager. Oh and my God. Jack, oh my God. Oh. You two. Honestly, Guy was brought up in show business. His yeah. his mother wore tights, as they used to say in old days. <laughs> Barry's heart was always in the theatre and particularly film. He he uh, represented various films so peter finch she represented that's right he ended up starting a bank he started in california bank. he started a bank I always thought, yeah that's yeah you can't get much more that. solid than that can you i didn't know that <laughs> but i I'd always remember because uh, cbs wanted me to get a manager so i managed to get barry cross to be my manager and one of the first things barry cross said to me was we've got to get you out of cbs <laughs> so it's a bit of an awkward situation I've just signed with Barry Cross and he wants to get me out of CBS. And CBS had done a fantastic job, I thought. But Barry also was very uh, friendly with John Reed, who was Elton's manager. Right. And then there was the connection with me and Gus Dudgeon. And so that's what happened. I left CBS and went to Rocket Records. And in fact, no one's fault at Rocket or CBS, more of a lawyer's thing. It was a very untidy arrangement where I still gave my records to CBS in the UK and in Holland. 
But for the rest of the world, I was with Rocket. And later on, it led to a huge problem because my Rocket deal ran out. But CBS said, no, you still owe us product for the UK and Holland, but we don't have to give you any recording budget. You've got to record these yourself. So it's Ooh. a very difficult situation. And in the end, I just ignored them. But I was introduced to a guy called Dave Stewart. It's not the Dave Stewart. Oh, yes, yeah, who did all the duets, didn't he? Yeah. And um, he was in um, Hatfield and the North and Egg ah. and National Health and some, you know, sort of um, slightly left field bands. Really good. And uh, he just contacted me actually through Rod Argent's shop, which you mentioned earlier on. He got his keyboards from Rod Argent's shop in Denmark Street. And he got my phone number through there and uh, played me this completed track. I had nothing to do with the idea of the song or the arrangement or anything of what becomes of the brokenhearted. And I thought, that sounds fantastic. I'd love to be involved. And I just went in and put my voice on it. And uh, it was what they call a slow burner. It, it came out about a year before it ever got any attention. And then it started getting played on Radio One, it would have been at that. You time. did Top of the Pops with it, didn't you? You did do Top. Yeah, of I remember. Pops. I remember yeah. seeing you on Top of the Pops. Yeah, and um, unfortunately, when it was getting sort of like five plays a day, Dave Stewart was in America, and we were on a, a small label, and it, the sales weren't following the airplay, and we had to wait till he came back, and he signed it to Stiff Records, who at the time were a very hot little label, and immediately it shot out the charts. But I think that if we could have got it to Stiff Records two or three weeks earlier, I think that could have been a number one. As it was, uh, I yeah. think it got to 10 or 12 or something like that. You were uh, enrolled, or what do you call it, put into the Hall of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in inducted, 2019, weren't you? Yeah. Inducted. Yes. Wow, what an honour. What an honour. We were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2019, and the ceremony was at the Barclays Centre in Brooklyn in front of 17,000 people the great and the good of the music industry were there and it was televised so no pressure Def Leppard, The Cure, Roxy Music, Radiohead, Janet Jackson and Stevie Nicks were inducted at the same time and uh, Susanna Hoff from the Bangles oh, yeah, uh, yeah, gave yeah. the induction speech for us and she is so eloquent and funny she's funny but she speaks so well and she gave the speech for us, which was absolutely brilliant. It was great. And then we got up and we, I think we played three tunes and uh, that was it. And it's such an honor, you know, I mean, in America, it's really prestigious to be. I was just wondering, but you said, and was, was that near to the Brooklyn Fox? I wonder if there was a sort of uh, nice kind of thought went through my mind when I said it. that. Yeah. It would have been, I don't, the Brooklyn Fox doesn't mm -hmm. exist anymore, I don't yeah. think. But it would have been so. I'm guessing you didn't take the subway home this time. No, actually, no, I didn't. No, we were we were very well looked after. It was limos all round, I'm afraid. Well, I'm, we're so thrilled to have you on today, Colin, and and also, you know, good luck with all the zombie stuff and yeah. your own, you know, with with one year coming out as a box set as well and urge people who haven't heard sorry the misspelt odyssey and oracle that's another story oh, again, yeah, it, yeah you, you tried to blag it saying well it's a load of odes uh, it, it was mostly rod argent rod argent and chris white came up with this desperate story that it was intentional and they told me this story for years and years we were doing an interview about three years ago and rod said yeah of course that story's a load of, to the dj not me that story of a load of codwallop <laughs> The artist, who was called Terry Quirk, went to my school 
can't spell, neither can I. But he made a mistake. And of course, in those days, it wasn't on a, a computer screen. It was a painting. And uh, when we saw it, we said, well, it's great, but there's a spelling mistake. Phone CBS, said, hold it, hold it, there's a spelling mistake. And they said, it's already gone to the printers. It's, it's tough, you know, you just have to live with it. So they came up with this story and told me that story as well, which, of course, gullible me, I believe. Because it's full of odes, is it? It's rather than spelling it O D Y, they spe- he spelled it's it O D E. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I never understood the story then. I don't understand it now. But anyway, it's a load of old codwallet, so it doesn't matter really. It's just it's a, a beautiful thing. Spell. Great artist, but poor speller. That's psychedelia <laughs> for you. Yes. Anyway, it's nice that we've not been talking to Neil MacArthur, and uh, we've been talking to Colin <laughs> no, Blunstone. I'm never going to live that down. No. <laughs> Sir, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to it you. It really has been. Oh, an I hope I haven't rambled too much, chaps. Um, not at all. Not at all. No, that's what we do. It's been lovely to talk to you. And just going back to the beginning, I thought I was going to talk to an American DJ from some obscure Midwestern town. And um, so I, I sort of took my breath away a bit at the beginning. No, you got, you got Murray the K. <laughs> yeah. It's been great fun, um, chaps. Lots of love, Colin. Thank you very much for being on. Thank you so much, Colin. Oh, what a nice man. Oh, that was absolutely enchanting. It's so nice to be able to um, send his regards to my step It was. (laughs) You know what I love about this podcast is that, you know, you get to go down all these other little areas of the music business that, you know, we we haven't really touched on beat combos, have we, much? You know, and how that sprung into being, you know, the psychedelia. Also the fact that, you know, as we always seem to, because, you know, obviously, because Gary and I both do a lot of swatting up for these. Having read all these interviews and everything, that there, there, was, there, was there was stuff in there I've never heard anywhere else. Yeah. It was really Yeah, delightful. you know, he's got a beautiful speaking voice, as he has a beautiful singing voice. Anyone who doesn't know any of the stuff, go and listen to it. Yeah, it's been really, really rewarding. I mean, these are beautiful records that he's made. Thank you for listening. Um, We'll be back on next week with another famous person who's going to tell us all about their life and uh, we'll ramble on with a few weird jokes, I'm sure, like we always do. Exactly. So until then, it's it's good night from me. And it's good night from them. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 